Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Bibles this morning, turn with me into the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1, we're going to finish out chapter 1 today. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the, today on Palm Sunday, it, it, you can either celebrate it as Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, either one's appropriate. Uh, on Palm Sunday, we generally celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, and all of the throngs of people coming out, waving palm branches, crying Hosanna, which is a cry for salvation. They say, they say, save us, Lord, save us, Lord. And, they, and the significance of that is that they want salvation from their, they want salvation from their political powers that are over them. They want salvation from the dictator sitting on the throne. Um, and Jesus comes to bring them salvation from their sin. They only see him as a political savior, and Jesus is a Jesus is a is a savior who saves. Maybe holistically is not the right word. Um, he is a all around savior, for lack of a better term. He saves from the inside out. He changes hearts, he changes lives, and out of that salvation comes, comes change in the way that we live, move, and have our being. Out of that salvation comes change in the way that we interact with others. There's healing and wholeness that comes to our relationship as a result of that salvation. And as we look at Zechariah, what we're going to find is that the end of Zechariah 1 may not fit the traditional theme of Palm Sunday, but the overall the overall tone of Palm Sunday of Jesus coming into Jerusalem is one of victory. The end of Zechariah one is a passage about victory. It's a passage about God's victory over the enemies of His people. It's about God's victory over his, over the enemies of His rule and reign. And so let's look at Zechariah chapter one together. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. I'm actually going to read it twice. I'm going to read it first out of the New King James, and then I'm going to read it again out of the message so we get an idea of how another translation or another or a paraphrase deals with this text. If you have Zechariah 1, 18 to 21, if you would stand to honor the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And so he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? So he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Since the reading of God's word. The word of God for the people of God. Now let me read the same passage again from the message. 
I looked up and was surprised by another vision. Four horns. I asked the messenger angel, and what's the meaning of this? He said, these are the powers that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem abroad. Then God expanded the vision to include four blacksmiths, and I asked, what are these all about? And he said, since the horns scattered Judah so badly that no one had any hope left, these blacksmiths have arrived to combat the horns. They'll dehorn the godless nations who use their horns to scatter Judah to the four winds. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people and we come to you hungry for the good news of the gospel. We come to you hungry for the bread of heaven. We come to you thirsty for the water that gives life. Father, would you come to us this morning and let us partake of the good news. Let us partake of the bread of heaven. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. So we've been going through the book of Zechariah. We've been going through these visions that Zechariah has had. and We've been talking about his interactions with the angel that shows up in nearly every vision. And now we see these, now we see these horns and these craftsmen. And it's not really clear what the significance of this vision is. It's not really clear what it all means. I mean, the angel gives Zechariah an interpretation, but without the interpretation, you're, he, he's looking at it, and it's hard to really tell. So let's think about it in these terms for just a second. How many of you know about the deep rivalry between Texas A&M and the Texas Longhorns? As Razorback fans, I know that we all tune into an Aggies Longhorns game hoping that they both lose. Um, however, if you know anything about A&M, then you know that they tend to have some unique traditions. One of their traditions is the Aggie War Hymn, and it's a fight song of sorts that they sing regarding their rivals. And at the, at the end of the students sway about, and, and they say these words, they say, Saw Varsity's horns off, saw Varsity's horns off, saw Varsity's horns off, short, hey. Doesn't sound as enthusiastic when I just say it like that, but that's the way it goes. What we have in our text is a vision that Zechariah has of a group of four craftsmen, the King James calls them smiths or blacksmiths, coming to saw off these horns that represent the enemies of Jerusalem. Last week we were introduced to the angel who is serving as Zechariah's guide through all of these visions, and what we said about this angel is... That is that it's possible that this angel is a pre-incarnate Christ or an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. It's possible that this is a Christophany. It's possible that this is Jesus coming in the old coming to Zechariah in the Old Testament as a form of an angel, and he guides Zechariah through each vision one by one. And we saw that the the angel interceded for Jerusalem, saying, "O Lord of hosts, how long?" How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? And then in verse 16, God responds to the angel's intercession by saying, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. This is the mercy that God promised. This vision is the mercy that he promised. He wouldn't let his people be completely overtaken by their enemies. So this morning as we look at Zechariah's second vision before us, I want us to see three things. I want us to see, number one, the instruments of the vision the instruments of the vision, the interpretation of the vision, and the implications of the vision. You can follow along with me in your bulletin, in the sermon outline, um, if that makes it easier for you to, to learn or to, or to absorb the information. 
So I want us to start with the instruments of the vision. The first thing Zechariah sees are four horns. And then in verse 20, he sees four craftsmen. The Hebrew word used in verse 20 is meant to give us the idea that these people have a specific job to work with natural elements. And now when we, when we think about all of the symbols used throughout all of these visions and really throughout all of Scripture, uh, like the book of Revelation, for example, it can be easy for us to throw up our hands and say, well, why doesn't God just say what he means? Why, why use all these symbols? Why use all of these pictures? Why doesn't God just say, well, this is what I'm going to do, and leave it at that? Because, you know, we're pretty direct people. As Southerners, we're, we're kind of direct. We say what we mean. We mean what we say. That's the way that we interact and communicate with one another. But God, he chooses to communicate in visions and symbols, and we don't understand the direct meaning always. So why is it that he's doing this? Well, it's like Jesus' disciples asking him in Matthew 13, 10, Jesus, why are you constantly speaking to people in parables? Well, there's a real temptation for us to ask God, why don't you just directly give me the information? And I think the reason is simply that our faith is weak. Our faith is weak. We need the stories that Jesus tells. We need the stories that Jesus tells. We need the symbols that God uses in the prophetic visions. We need the poems and songs written by the psalmist to remind us that, that God remains true to his word. We need the songs, we need the poems, we need the visions, we need the stories. Now it should be enough for God to directly tell us what he wants us to know. But our faith is too weak and through our own sin and weakness we are prone to forget. And I'll give you an example of how this works. There was a preacher whose mother had dementia. And he went to go visit his mother one Sunday after he preached. And he was talking to her about how service went. and She just sat there and listened. And, and he realized she wasn't participating in the conversation. And pretty soon he said, Mom, he, he thought he realized she was having one of her episodes. And he said, Mom, do you, do you even know who I am? And he said, do you remember what church we, we go to, the one that I pastor? And he said, do you remember what your favorite hymn is? And she said, and then in a little bit he said, do you remember what your favorite song is? And she said, she said, no. And he said, well, here, I'll start it. And he started saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as soon as he said that, she just instinctively said, he makes me to lie down and bring back. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And she finished the rest of the song. And pretty soon he started singing her favorite hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet. And then she goes, that saved a wretch like me. And she started just singing just as she knew it, just as she had sung it before. <clears throat> well, why is that? We need the songs. We need the stories. We need the symbols. We need everything that God gives us because our faith is weak and we are prone to forget. That's why we come here every week. We don't come here every week for a mini family reunion or because it's a social club. We come here to remind ourselves of the story of redemption that God has written us into. Stanley Hauerwas likes to say, and I'm paraphrasing, that the story of Christianity is the story that we were given when we had no story. <laughs> 
And so we gather every week to tell ourselves the old, old story again because we are constantly forgetting that we are not the authors of our own story. We are not the masters of our own destiny. We are not the heroes that we think we are. We have a terrible case of main character syndrome. When you worship with the people of God every week and rightly engage with the story of the gospel, then you begin to realize that you're not as good as you think you are, but Jesus is so much better than you ever thought he was. But in spite of your sin, in spite of your failure, he's willing to give you a place in his story. And so back to the main question, why, why the symbols and stories? We need them. That's why. We need them to help us remember God's faith. And so now let's look at the interpretation of the vision. Number one, the question might, that might get asked by some of us is why horns? Why do we see horns? Why does Zechariah see horns? Animal horns are a symbol of power and authority in the Bible, and this shouldn't really come as a surprise to us today, especially if you hunt or you farm. If you're a deer hunter, you want that 12-point buck. If you're a rancher, you probably are a fan of longhorn bulls. Well, why is that? It's because horns symbolize strength in the animal world. And so, and so it was that horns were a symbol of political or military power. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of a beast with ten horns, and God tells him that those ten horns represent ten different kings in Daniel 7.24. So horns are meant to represent kings, kingdoms, or political power. But why, why four of them? Why, why four horns? Why four Craftsman, what's the significance of the number four? It could be that the four horns represent the four main nations that have brought the most oppression to God's people at that point, as well as the directions that they're coming from. For example, it could represent Egypt coming from the south, Assyria coming from the north, Babylonia from, from the east, the, and the Medo-Persian Empire from the west. And it could also be that that number is used not necessarily to convey a numerical count, but it could be used to, to represent the comprehensiveness of Jerusalem's enemies. The, the comprehensiveness of the threat that's against them. When the Bible uses the number four or multiples of four, such as 40 or 400, or the number 144,000 in Revelation, it's not meant to convey an exact amount so much as it's meant to convey uh, the idea of comprehensiveness. And it's interesting to note that when multiples of four are used in the Old Testament, it's usually meant to convey a warning of a possible punishment. In Deuteronomy 25.3, if someone is to receive the punishment of a beating, they're to receive no more than 40 lashes. In Ezekiel 29.11-13, God promises to send the nation of Egypt into captivity for 40 years. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, God says that in 40 days he will bring destruction on Nineveh. And of course you remember in Genesis chapter 7 that God sent a flood upon the earth for 40 days. And only Noah and his family were spared. So when Zechariah, when Zechariah sees exactly four horns in his vision, not three, not five, not six, he's got to immediately know that this is not anything good. And we see that at the, verse, at the first half of verse 21. And I said, what are these coming to do? And so he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. Think about that one sentence, so that no one could lift up his head. We live in a world 
that would have us be cast down so that no one has any hope. And of course, it's easy to see that because the, the news never reports anything good. They can't report anything good because bad news is what gets the writings. So we live in a world that would have us be cast down so that no one has any hope. However, the vision doesn't stop there. Look at the rest of verse 21. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them. The craftsmen that Zechariah sees in the vision are coming to terrify these horns, to cast out the horns of the nation that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so then the question is, why are there craftsmen? Well, these craftsmen serve as God's instruments to cut down horns. And so when we read the word craftsman, it's important for us to think of people, uh, these people as carpenters, stone workers, masons, blacksmiths, and other artisanal trade workers. So think about this vision in these terms. There are multiple enemies coming after the people of God. And who does God send to deal with these enemies that are coming after his people? You would think that he would raise up an army. You would think that he would raise up soldiers, but there's no soldiers, there's no army, there's only craftsmen. It's like it's like if, if our nation went to war with a nearby nation like Mexico, for example, you wouldn't want our government to send, to send an army of blacksmiths and carpenters. Well, why not? Because they're not trained to fight. They're trained to make. They're trained to make things. You would want them to send soldiers, right? But when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the parables of Jesus... When it comes to the symbols, we, don't, we, we get a lot of things that we don't expect. God tends to work in ways that we don't expect. And so instead of raising up an army of soldiers, he raises up an army of craftsmen. And these craftsmen are coming with the intention of casting down the horns that stand against God's people. Well, again, why craftsmen? Why not an army? Well, think about what we've been talking about this far, thus far in Haggai and Zechariah. Between Haggai and Zechariah, what have they been trying to get the people to do? They've been trying to get them to rebuild the temple. They've been trying to get them to work on the house of God. So what's God saying to us today? He's saying that if we will stop focusing on ourselves and put our hand to the plow and build the house of God, then our opposition will be cast down. And that's what he's telling, that's what he's telling Judah and Jerusalem. That's what he's telling... Zechariah to tell to the people, if you will get to work doing what God has called you to do, then your enemies will be dealt with. See, you don't have to focus on your enemies. You just have to focus on doing what God's called you to do, and your enemies will get taken care of. But see, the reality of the situation is I think sometimes that we forget that we have an enemy to deal with. I think sometimes we forget that we have an enemy to deal with in the first place. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, stand steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And so, from 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, we learn two things from these two little verses. We learn that we have an enemy that needs to be resisted, James 4, 7 tells us that if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. And I, don't, and, and I don't think we have a problem resisting the enemy, but I think we have a problem remembering that we even have an enemy. So we learn that we have an enemy, and we learn that he needs to be resisted. 
And and again, I think I don't think we have a problem remembering that we have an enemy. I think we have a problem resisting the enemy. I know that all of us are fully aware that we don't have problems. I don't think we're under any delusions that our lives are perfect and nothing is going wrong. I think any one of us could point to problems going on in our lives. But I think we have a problem remembering that as believers there is a devil that is out to make our lives a living hell because he knows his time is short. Now here's the thing. I used to be a proponent of the idea that I am my own worst enemy. And I've been convicted of this you know, this week through my own prayer and study that I'm actually, I actually might be my second worst enemy. Because the first worst enemy I have is the devil himself. And that's, that's the first worst enemy that any of us have. And according to John chapter 10, verse 10, it's the devil's job to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, they being his sheep, and, have it, and might have it more abundantly. And so what's the idea there? The idea is that we have an enemy and that enemy needs to be resisted. And the way you resist the enemy is to run to the source of life. So if the devil's job is to steal, to kill, and to destroy, then you, have to, then you resist that by turning to the source of life. So it's, if it's the devil's job to kill, steal, and destroy, what, what's Jesus' job? Jesus' job is to give life. Jesus gives life to those who believe. And so you resist your enemy by running to the source of life. And so, as we get back to Zechariah 1, there's three main takeaways. There's, there's three main implications that come from this vision. There's three takeaways we need to be reminded of. Number one, God is raising up craftsmen to deal with enemies against the body of Christ. It is certain that we have an enemy, but it is just as certain that God has raised up, is raising up, and will continue to raise up those who will fight against our enemies. Jesus himself stands over and above the church as her head to defend her against her enemies. And then we as believers are being built up by the Spirit to wage war against the enemies that would rear their heads within the church. And when talking about the preciseness with which God raises up people for the job of defending the church, here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, God finds the right men, not, not four men with pens to write, not four architects to draw plans, but four carpenters to do the rough work. Rest assured, you who tremble for the ark of God, that when the horns grow troublesome, the carpenters will be found. You need not fret concerning the weakness of the church of God at any moment. There may be growing up in obscurity the valiant reformer who will shake the nations. Chrysostoms may come forth from our ragged schools, and Augustines may come from the thickest darkness of our poverty. The Lord knows where to find his servants. He hath in ambush a multitude of mighty men, and at his word they shall start up to battle. For the battle is the Lord's, and he shall get himself the victory. God is at work raising up people with the task of defending his church. And if you or I won't do what God is calling us to do, he'll find someone else who will. In Matthew 3, when the Jews were trying to rely on their Abrahamic lineage for their salvation, Jesus said, Don't say we're children of Abraham, for God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Listen, here's the deal. If we want to sit on the sidelines and twiddle our thumbs, 
God will raise up people who will actually do the work of the kingdom. But we won't receive any of the benefit. We can be a church that actually goes forward in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, or we can be a social club that kind of resembles what church used to look like. The choice is ours. But we have to make our minds up that we're actually going to be a part of the church and do what God has called us to do. Number two, we need to remember that God will deliver his people in his own time. The overarching theme of this book in Zechariah that we've mentioned over the last two weeks and that we'll probably talk about again before it's all over is that the meaning of Zechariah's lineage, the meaning of Zechariah's lineage going back to his grandfather, Ido the seer, is at the appointed time God blesses and remembers. That's what Zechariah's name, that's what Zechariah's lineage means. At the appointed time, God blesses and remembers. So when we think about the craftsmen in Zechariah's vision, we see people whose job it is to tear down and destroy the horns. But the job of the craftsman isn't traditionally to destroy anything. Traditionally, it's the job of craftsmen to build and put things together in such a way that they're useful to people. Anybody can take a sledgehammer and tear down something. That doesn't take much know-how, but it takes a craftsman to build something. It takes a craftsman to create something. And sometimes that creation takes time. Michael Fries, in, in one of his commentaries on Zechariah, he says, Perhaps the division of the four craftsmen is meant to evoke the idea that just as craftsmen, just as craftsmen do their work slowly, carefully, and skillfully, so God also skillfully works his justice in his own time. Also, sometimes we can only understand the work of a craftsman once it's finished. In the same way, God's ultimate justice will only be fully understood when time has drawn to a close. And I know exactly what he's talking about. Because when my grandparents wanted to remodel that old house that we're living in on their property, I was pretty nervous about it. And that, that house that sat vacated for 18 years, you know, in, that the house had sat vacated for 18 years. Think about that. There were people, there were children who were born and got and got old enough to register for the selective service in the amount of time that that house sat there. It, it was left in a mess by the person who lived there before. There were holes in the in the floors and walls. The bathtub was just about to fall through the floor. And if that house was sitting on my property, I would have just bulldozed it and started. But my grandpa kept saying, no, that, that house is fine. It just needs some work. Well, the day we started working on it, I thought it was a lost cause from the beginning. But then when we fast-forwarded to the day that we moved in there, it looked completely different. Truth be told, there are still some things about it that need to be worked on, but it looks a whole world better than what it did than when we started. Why? Because my grandpa and, and Arliss Dotson are craftsmen. Their work takes time, and you don't know how it will all turn out until they're finished. It may look a mess, but when it's done, it'll be a masterpiece. When they're done, you understand why they did what they did and why it took so much time, and it's the same way when it comes to the promises of God. We don't understand why it seems to take so long for God to fulfill His promises, but if we hold on, we'll understand it better by and by. The third thing we need to remember is that obedience to God's call on our lives is a blow against the enemy. Remember in this vision, God didn't raise up an army to deal with these horns. He raised up craftsmen. He raised up people with tools in their hands. Think about that for a minute. 
Think about the different branches of our military for just a minute. Within each branch of the military, there are countless jobs. Not everyone in the military is on the front lines. Not everyone in the military is, is on the front lines fighting. You've got to have some folks who stay, in, stay back at the base. They're all trained to fight so they know what to do if they're in conflict. But with some of the jobs in the military, you can go long periods of time without ever having to touch your firearms, except for, except for routine maintenance and practice. You know, for example, my grandpa built roads when he was stationed in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. I knew one guy who was a truck dispatcher for the trucks that would come in and out of his base. So what does that teach us about this vision? It teaches us that you don't have to be some kind of super spiritual giant to do what God's called you to do. You just have to put yourself in a posture of obedience. If you're in the military, you don't have to fight all the time. Sometimes you've got to scrub toilets. For example, I work I work at a funeral home. When people ask me what I when people ask me what I did at the funeral home, or what I do at the funeral home, uh, they would be surprised to learn that I did some lawn care and I scrubbed toilets and I cleaned floors. Of course, you know, I would go out on death calls and, and bring people and bring bodies into our care. But people don't think about the fact that even a funeral home has to have their toilets scrubbed and their lawn taken care of and their building power washed. God doesn't send soldiers. God doesn't need soldiers all the time. Sometimes he needs somebody to just get a plunger and do what needs to be done. And so what this tells us is that it doesn't take anybody with any particular special talent, talents or gifts, although we all have gifts in some way, to do what needs to be done. We just need to find ourselves in a posture of obedience. And when God, when God sees that you're in a posture of obedience, he will put you to work. And so if you want to know what God would have you to do, seek God in prayer. Ask him what he wants for your life and be willing to be obedient at a moment's notice. And when you do that, you'll begin to see God do amazing things. A.W. Tozer tells us that the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are at opposite sides of the same coin. One of the questions that was asked in Sunday school this morning is, which is more important, faith or works? And the, the answer is yes. This morning as we sing this last song, we need to ask ourselves, have I been obedient? Have I heeded the call of God on my life, or have I just tried to keep God relegated to Sunday while I live life on my own terms. We need to think about it this morning because the future of any church congregation, including this one, is determined by its members' obedience to God. Are we willing to trust and obey, or are we going to be skeptical and disobedient and wonder why the church isn't growing? It's something to think about. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And Lord, we ask, Father, that as we continue to trek through the book of Zechariah, that you would use this as an opportunity to remind us of our need to be obedient, of our need to have faith, of our need to cling to your son, Jesus. Father, we are weak and needy people, but Lord, you are strong, you are full of strength, and you have an abundance of strength for us. Father, would you empower us to do the things that you're calling us to do? Would you show us what we need to do? 
We love you, we trust you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.